a child of God. Having my hand, powerful word of God. Can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, man, it's good to see you. Everybody loves a Hollywood ending. Those old traditional Hollywood endings. Everybody loves them. You know, the hero gets the girl, rides off into the sunset, has a adoring, gazing fans applauding them. It's awesome, isn't it? It's awesome. However, in our world that we live in, <laughs> it doesn't always look that way, does it? And we may have people applauding, but it's not because they love us, it's because they're glad to see us leaving. Amen. If any man could ever have been described as a hero, it would need to be the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, however, it says that he wasn't the type of man that you would look on and go, wow. Wow. He didn't have heroic, selfless followers, we find in Mark 10. He didn't have money, earthly power, or a fancy sports car. And we find that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I didn't know a fancy sports car was in the Bible, but evidently it is. Well, he didn't have a horse or a place to lay his head. That's what he said. There was nothing about Jesus that made him stand out from the fellow Jews that he lived with, worked with, walked around with. But I submit to you, that the world has never seen a greater hero than Jesus Christ. He left his home in heaven, came to this world. His arch enemies were here. He, he came into their territory. He invaded their territory. And he did it to redeem his people, to bring us back from our sins. He who was and is and ever shall be Almighty God came into this world to become a man. Lived a sinless life. Kept the law perfectly. Because He knew, God knew that we couldn't keep it. So He had to send His Son. And when He got here, He was rejected. Jesus was rejected by the very people He came to save. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of like parenting, isn't it? You do everything you everything you can for your kids and they get to be teenagers and they reject you. People say that's normal. They're teenagers. And somewhere in their 20s when they get they have families and they start to have children, then it dawns on them maybe mom and dad weren't as brain dead as I thought. I accidentally caught Jeff saying saying when he was 25. I remember it like it was yesterday. Because I never thought I'd ever hear these words. He said, Dad, you were right. I stopped. I said, say it again. He didn't repeat it. But boy, I remember it. I, I remember the words. But he came into this world to provide a way for the lost to be saved. But in order for him to open that way of salvation, he had to die. 
He had to be nailed to a cross, executed, this innocent, dying for the guilty. Was rejected by the Jews. They accused him of blasphemy and declared that he was worthy of death. They beat him, bound him, and took him to Pontius Pilate. Pilate refused to free Jesus, upholding the death sentence, turning Jesus over to his soldiers so they could execute him. And then these soldiers took Jesus and they mocked Him. They beat Him. And they led Him away to a place called Calvary. Nailed Him to a cross. And so our text today in Mark chapter 15. Those Bibles you held up. Make sure you're there. Mark 15 verses 33 through 41. We're not going to quite get to all 41, but we'll get to most of them. And by the time that our text opens, in verse 33, Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. And during those first three hours, He suffered all the pain the cross could give. During that time, Jesus also had been mocked by the crowd standing at the foot of the cross, hurling abuse and making fun of Him. Those first three hours were a time of pain and shame. During that time, humanity had its way with the Creator. The God who made man out of the dust of the earth was dying for sin on a cross right before them, and they had no compassion for Him. They would have no compassion for Him they would have more compassion for a dog that was laying on the side of the road and had been hit by a car than with Jesus hanging on the cross. Up to this point, Jesus has suffered greatly at the hands of man. But now it's time for Him to suffer at the hands of His Heavenly Father. Now, this is going to get you a little bit today. It should. Because it got to me. The cross was not about man having his chance to attack God. The cross was about God judging His Son for sin in the place of us. In these verses, we're going to see a suffering servant. And today I want us to walk away with three things. The misery, the miracles, and the ministry of His death at the cross. Let's jump right in. Verses 33 through 37, we want to talk about the misery of his death. Read with me. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's our confounding statement for the day. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Says in the King James, which I memorized. It's funny, I keep quoting it. 35, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. By the time this verse, 33, and this section starts, he'd been on the cross for at least three hours, nails driven through his hands, his feet, nails passing through his hands, 
close to the proximity to the median nerves. It would have caused acute spasms of pain to shoot through his body. The muscles of his body would be cramping from dehydration and from being forced to remain in such an unnatural position for such a long period of time. You ever got a cramp in your leg? It just won't go away. I get them at night. It's hard. I have to get up. I can't lay in bed. I have to get up and move. It takes. It seems like it takes forever for that to go away. I can't imagine what Jesus endured. The spasms in his body <coughs> would have caused his back, which had been lacerated from the beatings, to struggle against the wood that it hung against. A raging thirst would have gripped the Lord. We can only try to imagine the agony that He endured on the cross. But by noon, the Lord's physical sufferings were not even close to being over. By the sixth hour, which was noon, He had endured unbelievable physical agony. But the spiritual sufferings were about to begin. We're told that darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours it was dark. Humanity had abused and shamed the Son of God. So the Father said, I'm going to turn the lights out on you. It's the middle of the day. The sun doesn't go dark. I mean, it doesn't do that. Unless God said, you want to bet? It wasn't an eclipse of the sun, as some would propose that would not have been possible at the Passover because that was held just after a full moon so scientifically it couldn't happen it wasn't a natural disaster it was a supernatural darkness it appears that this darkness was not worldwide but localized in Israel why did God cause this darkness to fall upon Israel the day Jesus died let me give you two or three Observations, opinions. One is, has to do with the people around the cross. For three hours, they laughed, mocked, and stared at Christ hanging naked and shameful on the cross. And so God brought about a dense darkness to prevent them from seeing what He was about to do to His Son. What Christ was about to endure was so holy that sinful humanity was not worthy to look and to see. Another reason, perhaps, had to deal with ancient prophecy. The prophet Amos in chapter 8 and verse 9 said, it will, be, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Throughout the Bible, darkness is associated with the judgment of God. In Exodus 10, God sent darkness upon the land of Egypt as a sign of His coming judgment. We can see the Egyptians worshipped their sun god named Ra. And so God extinguished what little power He would appear to have. Jesus said that His second coming would be announced by darkness in Mark 3. In those days, the sun will not shine, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. It will be a time of judgment. And when the darkness fell on Israel that day, God was signaling that the judgment of that nation was at hand. Now, we just witnessed two of the most 
amazingly hedonistic, selfish political party conventions I've ever seen. Not one time did any candidate stand on that stage and say, with God's help, we will. Oh, I heard a lot of, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's why we're in the shape we're in. Until we get God back in the equation, nothing's going to change. care what party affiliation you go with. Don't care. Because it's God and God alone that will make the difference. And just as God judged Israel, there's going to be a day He's going to judge us and probably is in the process of doing it. Maybe a third reason has to do with the curse of sin. The lost are held captive in the darkness of their sins, according to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 1. Jesus entered the very darkness of sin that He might bring out of the darkness His marvelous light, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. Darkness that covered Israel lasted for three hours, and as far as you know, that darkness silenced the people around the cross. Can you imagine? You're the one hurling abuse, and all of a sudden the lights go out. I get your attention. And they'll probably get you to shut your mouth. And for three hours, there was little sound or movement. And at the end of that time, Jesus says, and cries, it says, cries out loud, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is there a humanness to the Savior on the cross? I just see it in that, in that question. Is there an understanding of what His purpose in life and coming to the earth was all about? I see it in that statement. And to understand why Jesus said that, we need to understand what was happening during that, those three hours of darkness. While He hung on the cross, the sins of those who would be saved were transferred to Jesus. As Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5:21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. While darkness covered the nation of Israel that day, the blessed Lord of glory was plunged into great darkness, a darkness he'd never known. The holy sinless lamb of God literally became sin on that cross. Peter would put it this way in 1 Peter 2, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. We need to consider what that means. It means that every lie, every murder, every act of revenge, every aborted baby, every word of blasphemy, Every evil deed committed by all those who would be ever done would be redeemed by His blood. And if they were going to be redeemed by His blood, all of their sin was placed on Him at that moment. All the pride, all the hatred, all the sexual sin, all the immorality, all the wickedness, all the ungodliness of His people placed on Him. Every rape, every molestation, every injustice, every evil thought or deed ever committed by those who would redeem placed on Jesus. And when that transaction was made on the cross, God the Father focused all His wrath against the sin into the body of Jesus, His Son. 
And God judged him as if he were every one of us and every one of our sins brought on him. God treated Jesus as if he were a murderer, a rapist, a blasphemer. In that moment of time, Jesus suffered the greatest agony of hell itself. He suffered separation from the presence of his Father. Now, you'll argue with me about that, and that's okay. But I can only imagine, because I can never really ever experience this, but I can only imagine how Jesus felt. To be abandoned, to feel abandoned by the Father of glory, by His heavenly Father. The greatest pain of hell won't be the fire, won't be the thirst, it won't be the gnashing of teeth. It will be the agony of eternal separation from an Almighty God. Go read Second Thessalonians one eight and nine. When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the people near the cross thought that he was calling for Elijah. An ancient Jewish legend said that Elijah would come to the aid of the righteous Jews in their hour of need. And so one of them gives Jesus a drink of vinegar. It was a weak, tart wine that would help with the thirst. Jesus took the drink, but it didn't have that myrrh contained within it. That's a narcotic that helps with the pain. People thought they might see a miracle that day. They thought Elijah might show up and save Jesus. And yet when Jesus cried like He did, He was not calling on Elijah. He was actually quoting Psalm 22 and verse 1. But He was doing more than that. He was signaling that He had been judged in the place of sinners for sin. Verse 37, back to our text. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. John tells us what He cried in John 19.30. This is what Jesus cried. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. And that phrase, it is finished, is the Greek word to telestai. It's a common word that had many meanings in that society. But the primary usage for that word had to do with two parties coming together in agreement on a price. So when Jesus said it is finished, He and the Father had come in agreement on the price. And He was willing to die so that you and I could find forgiveness and redemption from the sins that caused Him to be on the cross in the first place. A dear, dear friend of mine, Bernie Ayers, a great teacher of the Word, it was an old chart preacher. Remember those guys? Bernie had a chart that he shared in chapel one time when I was in college. And it showed Jesus in a cross standing above the world. And it said that he reached uh, back to creation and forward to judgment and brought all the sins upon him. And that is so true. Can you imagine the weight? Not only the ones that have gone before him, but all those that yet to come, yours and mine were included on this day. You see, Jesus went to the cross. He went to satisfy the reconciliation with God. He didn't die to pay the devil back. He died because the wages of sin is death. You die if you don't change and you keep sinning, you're going to die. That's all the hope you've got. That's it. That's it. But Jesus died because the only way that you could ever be free, the only way you and I could ever be free, is for an innocent man to give his life in our place. And that's what Jesus did. Took 
our sins upon Him, judged in our place. 1 John 2 says He became the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary was the ultimate expression of God's love. I read Romans 5, 8, 1 John 4, 10. Christ died in physical and spiritual agony to save His people from their sins. The misery of His death. Now let's look at verse 38 and look at the miracles at His death. Verse 38 says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, the death of Jesus was attended by supernatural miracles. When Jesus died... Matthew 27, Matthew says it this way, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Dead men walking. Isn't that a great one? Can you imagine? Oh, Uncle so-and-so gets up, and you see him down there drinking coffee at the, at the corner shop there in Jerusalem. I just buried that guy two weeks ago. Well, he's down there drinking coffee today because the veil was torn. Earthquakes, rocks shattered, graves opening up, long dead people getting up and walking into the city. And look again at verse 38. And the veil of the temple torn from top to bottom. It's very important. Because the veil in Solomon's temple hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. And according to law, only the high priest could go behind that veil. And he could only go there one day each year. That's it. That's the only time he could go. God promised Israel that he would dwell between the two cherubim that stood over the mercy seat, He promised that He would meet His people there. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to take that blood of the Lamb, enter the Holy of Holies, sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, resting on top of the Ark of the Covenant, making atonement for the sins of God's people. But to enter that Holy of Holies at any other time without blood was a violation of the holiness of God. And you would die on the spot. Priest in Jesus' day... Never did it wrong. <laughs> they always did it right. The veil stood as a barrier between man and God. The veil said to all who entered the temple, this far and no farther. The moment Jesus died, the massive veil, which was so thick, it, it said a team of horses could not tear it apart, ripped down the middle as if a giant sword sliced it in two. That torn veil signaled the end of the Jewish sacrificial system. That torn veil proclaimed that the way to God was open for all who would come to Him through Christ. The torn veil means that whosoever will come can come to Jesus and be saved by the grace of God. I want to remind you that the text that we're reading today makes one thing very clear. There are not many ways to get to, get to God. There's only one way. To get to God, His name is Jesus. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12. Muhammad did not die for sin. Buddha did not die for sin. Joseph Smith did not die for sin. There is only one man on that cross that day who died for the sins of all mankind, and His name was Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for sin and for sinners. And for all those who come to Him will forever be saved. So we've seen the misery. We've seen the miracles. Now let's look at the ministry and His death. Verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of Him saw the way He breathed His last, He said, Truly, this was the Son of God. 
Roman centurion. A centurion because he was in charge of a hundred soldiers. Roman soldiers. Probably had witnessed many crucifixions. Many executions. No doubt supervised the death of hundreds, if not thousands of men during his soldier career. But as he watched Jesus die, something was different about this man. Usually when people died on the cross, they grew gradually weaker until their bodies simply gave out, but not Jesus. Jesus Christ endured terrible pain, suffering on the cross, and ended His life by crying out in a loud voice. Normally those crucified were not able to speak in anything above a whisper. At the end of their lives, if they could speak at all. But when Jesus died, it seemed as though He still possessed strength of mind and body which caused the centurion, when he, how he saw Jesus die, simply say, this must be the Son of God. And that's not all this man saw. He saw how Jesus held his peace as he was crucified. He listened as Jesus prayed for his adversaries. He saw the tender minister of the Lord Jesus, the ministry of the Lord Jesus to his mother Mary. He saw how Jesus reached out to the dying thief. He saw the sign over the Lord's head. He saw the darkness that covered the earth. He saw all this and he knew that there was something different about this man. You don't have to read much into it. But I've always been of the opinion that, and I don't want to read a lot into it, but I've just been of the opinion that I'll bet this guy found his way to the Lord, don't you? because of the experience that he felt and went through that day. Salvation is as simple as placing childlike faith in Jesus Christ. This may not mean much to you, but the fact that Jesus died possessing his mental and physical strength says a lot about his death. I mean, when the Romans killed somebody, they didn't just kill them, they killed them. They made it painful. They made it a spectacle because they wanted law to be kept and followed. The fact that Jesus did not release His Spirit, which is what the phrase gave up the Spirit means, until He knew God was satisfied with the payment He had made for sin. Jesus chose the time, He chose the means, and He chose the place where He would lay down His life as a ransom for sin. Jesus died for sin, but He died on His own terms so that people like that centurion and you and me could find salvation could find hope and could experience it. So the question of the hour is, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Mark closes this scene, very sad scene, by telling us that some precious women who had followed Jesus and ministered to Him during His life and ministry, who had been near the cross earlier, now they moved farther away. Perhaps they did this because they didn't want to hear Him breathe His last breath. But these women are broken hearted. As far as they are concerned, this is the end of Jesus. All their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations had been shattered. And what these women failed to realize is that it's not the end. If we didn't have women working and serving in church, where would we be today? Where would we be today? My grandmother was the first to make sure I knew what Jesus was all about. My mother would make sure we got to church. I'm told my dad would take us and drop us off and leave. Great example, wasn't it? I'm grateful for my grandmother who made sure that we got into church, got into church, got into church, got into church. I'm kind of like 
John Hagee said, I grew up with a drug problem. I got drugged to church on Sunday, drugged to church on Sunday night, and drugged to church on Wednesday night. We need a little bit more of that kind of drug problem in our kids today. Why did Jesus do what he did? He did it so that I and you and all sinners might be saved. Romans 3.26, For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 4.25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So really the question of the day is not what does his death mean to you, but are you saved? Are you saved? And if not, why not? Jesus paid a heavy price a high price for your sin and for my sin. Would you consider, would you consider letting Him have your whole life and your whole heart? If you've never surrendered, today would be a great day. If you have surrendered and you've wandered, guess what? He's waiting for you to come back. And the Bible clearly teaches that if you'll take one step toward the Lord, He will turn and run to you. He will run to you. Because He can't wait to get you back home. Pray with me. Would you, Father, I thank You for this time this morning. We need You. Oh, we need You. Every hour we need You. God, I'm asking today that if there's someone here today that needs to be touched of Your Spirit and, Father, who will have the courage to say yes to You, maybe they would respond in that way today. Perhaps there's others here who just need to rededicate their life. And we encourage them to do that as well. But Father, whatever it is in, in their life that they need, would you move in them, touch them? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great song of invitation. Uh, let's uh, stand as we sing at the cross. Love ran red. Uh, Chris will be leading us to a great song. Just respond to God if you would this morning. <laughs>